Welcome to the fifth podcast in our First Peter sermon series, Through the Fire. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley will be continuing our series with a sermon called Community with Others. everybody good morning uh, maybe you noticed wherever if well either at a table or at a chair I distributed randomly some copies of first and second Peter uh, we've got a box full of them still and I don't know why uh, maybe because not everybody is attending like, like usual uh, but those are available for free for you to use uh, to mark up to make notes uh, so not everybody knows that uh, so I just kind of spread them around. If you haven't already grabbed one yet, please do so and use it uh, however you want. Uh, if you're like me, which I know I am, I don't like marking up my main Bible, but something like that, uh, you can keep your notes together without destroying the binding of your Bible. So uh, take those and use those, please. We have a box of them. Okay, uh, we are going to uh, back up just a little bit to this past Sunday because uh, some things that I think really need to be highlighted, brought to our attention, and kind of filled out, especially in light of some current events. Uh, so we are going through the fire, and we need to remember as we go through First Peter, as we said last week, this is not do this and you will live. Uh, as we move forward through the book, please keep this in mind. It's not just simply be a better person. What is really going on is that second sentence, uh, where we've already been at. If you're just joining us, uh, you've missed uh, the beginning point, and you need to go back and catch up and bring yourself up to speed on YouTube or whatever to, to watch the uh, previous messages. What really is going on is do this because you live. What we look at today and then following, I don't know how many weeks we're going to be in in First Peter, all of that is based on you are born again. You are a child of God. You are free and the ability that you have now to say no to the past and embrace a brand new future is yours only because of Jesus Christ. You cannot attain a higher spiritual level of whatever on your own effort or through your own merits. It is only always solely because of what Jesus has done for you and for me. Can I hear an amen? We have that grace, that solid rock to hold on to. Uh, so only because of what he's done can we even begin to contemplate what Peter is talking about uh, through the next few weeks. So keep that in mind, please, because what we're talking about is imperatives. We brought out, we, uh, I mentioned a couple of the verbal imperatives that are in the text, and we have two more in this brief passage this morning. And uh, they are intertwined. What we looked at last week is hope and holiness. And I, I want to back up just for a few moments, a few minutes, and redress those two imperatives and how they intertwine, how they work together, because I think there's something I left out that's real important. Uh, 
we tend to prefer one or the other. In the way that we live, in the way that we respond to God's grace, we tend to prefer either hope or holiness for a variety of reasons. So let's look at that briefly, okay? Let's say you prefer hope over holiness. In other words, you'd rather focus on Jesus coming back someday and really kind of forget about what Peter says in verse 15, to be holy in all of your conduct. If you prefer hope over holiness, then you've got the perfect situations for situation for license to take root and grow in your heart and in your life. Jerry Falwell Jr., I think, is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. I'm not setting up a straw man. I'm not throwing him under the bus or any other metaphor. But what, is ha- what happened? You heard it in the news, right? Okay. Uh, the media is presenting Jerry Falwell Jr. as a main or maybe the main evangelical leader of our time. He's not. But uh, the media grabs onto something and someone, and especially if it's scandalous, and then explodes it in front of our faces. And the most current one is Jerry Falwell Jr. and what's going on with him and his wife and the pool boy. So I'm not going to get into the ugly details. If you saw any of it in the news, if you're like me, your heart kind of sinks. Oh, no, not again, right? Uh, And we kind of dwell on that uh, for a while until the next failure. So I am saying he and what's going on there is a cautionary tale to wake us up and remind us of holiness and how significant that is in our lives. If I were a betting man, which I'm not, but if I were tempted to wager, uh, I, I'd wager on this. I, I don't think Jerry Falwell Jr. set out as a young man or possibly a new believer. I don't know his whole background story, but years ago, I can't imagine that he set out to do what we just heard about in the media and to be a part of what is now exploding. I can't imagine that was a a goal of his. That sounds ridiculous to even say that. But it's a cautionary tale because all of us are capable of complete moral failure and breakdown. All of us are. No one has gone beyond that. We're all a one word or one click or one action or even one thought away from the same thing. So it is a wake-up call. What Peter is talking about is holiness, personal holiness, matters. It, it truly, deeply matters right now for our own lives, for the life of the, the church and the body, and for the watching world around us. If all you have, the essence of what you have as a Christian is fire insurance, Uh, I said a prayer that keeps me out of hell, uh, and and who cares about anything else because Jesus is coming back someday. I mean, that's kind of the, that's what I heard. That's at least what I remember I heard when I was a kid. And that's, that's not being a disciple. It's not being a follower. So hope of someday being saved from all this without the holiness that must join it, is not legit. And you have reason to question what it is that you believe and the direction that you're going in. Now, let's switch it. 
Let's say that you prefer holiness over hope, that what matters to you most in life is having a good moral standard for you and, well, others, of course, to live by, so much so that what Peter says in verse 13 about setting your hope fully on the grace that will be brought, so it's not just even now the grace you experience, but all the more better, more wonderfully fully someday, okay? It, that doesn't even register. So if that's your preference, then you've got the perfect situation in your heart for legalism to take root and to grow. Now, there's countless, and there have been countless, and even just America alone, uh, religious movements, organized, formal, denominational efforts, and personal preferences galore, certainly all over the place, that have led some or many down the path to believe that obedience to ethical codes, obedience to Old Testament laws, that that is the prime concern. In fact, that that's all that matters. And I really believe it comes out and maybe springs out of um, a personal desire for control. I can achieve something. I can achieve a better me if I just do more of these rules or follow more laws or come across as pure, cleaner, or better, and especially better than the guy or the woman next to me. That reveals a very spiritually dangerous place to be. Why? You don't need Jesus for that. You don't need a saving relationship with Christ in order to just jump on the next self-improvement wagon, okay? You don't even think about Jesus and his grace anymore if that's the direction that you're focused in and on. So we need to be growing in our experience and our understanding of being fully alive to hope and also to be fully engaged in holiness because of what Christ has done in order for us to commune with God. That was really the point of last week. And also I would say this, uh, for the watching world, for our watching neighbors, for the people that we interact with that know us, they also need to see that we're communing with God in both of these ways. And I, don't, I, I try to never say balance because in my world, balance is a dirty word. Because if you're always striving for perfection and balance, eh, you're never gonna get there and you just feel lousy all the time. So I try not to use the word balance, but to, to some degree, our growth in both of these areas, that's what people are desperate for. Because if it's just one, if it's just holiness, then they're gonna write you off as just a do-gooder. Uh, but if it's just the hope, then you're disengaged from reality. And what good are you to me or anybody else in this world? You see what I'm saying? For the watching world to see both of these growing in your life means they can't tag you as an extreme anymore. That, ah, you, they, they, they gotta all of a sudden wrestle with, well, who are you? You're different than anybody else in the news or anybody else I've rubbed against probably the wrong way at some point in my life. You stand apart from that and I don't get it. I don't understand why that, friends, brothers and sisters, I believe is the apologetic that the world needs today. Someone who's growing in both of those aspects can't just be pigeonholed. And you can't just be shoved aside as another religious kook or somebody who is no good for society today or whatever, whatever the extremes are. So I hope, 
I hope you're beginning to understand the, the, just the, the imperative, like Peter says, and the wisdom. I mean, this is ancient literature. You know that. I'll just say that again anyway. It's not just for ancient times. It's for our times. The world needs to see people who are alive in both hope and holiness. So that's where we were last week. I wanted to stress the importance and significance that, of that for us and as we attempt to be authentic with what it is that we believe, followers of Christ. So those are our first two imperatives. The second two imperatives of Peter switch the focus from communion with God to community with other people. So let's read that passage as we continue in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Maybe you're already getting the feeling that, you know, Peter's not like Paul. If you spend a lot of your time reading Galatians or Ephesians or Colossians, it just sounds different the way he talks. But one thing we really, well, Paul does it too, but Peter in his way pulls the original Testament into what he's saying. And he just did that. He just quoted from Isaiah. But it sounds kind of weird. Why does he jump into grass withering and flowers fading? And how does that fit into the direction he's going in? So we're going we're gonna to try to figure that out together, okay? Uh, but here are the two imperatives that we're going to spend the rest of our time with this morning. Number one, in verse 22, chapter one, love one another earnestly. And the second one Chapter 2, verse 2, long for the pure spiritual milk, okay? What should the Christian community be marked by? And I'll restate it like this. Deep, number one, deep gospel-centered love. Chapter 1, verse 22, love one another earnestly, from a pure heart, deep gospel love. What do I mean by that? Well, let's begin at the beginning. What's our starting point for building community as a church? When you become a Christian, maybe you remember this. If you call yourself a follower of Christ, you didn't instantly transfer into an alternative reality, like some kind of a movie. Uh, once you uh, however your experience started, you prayed a prayer perhaps or uh, something happened or a light came on in your head and, uh, and in your heart and you had an experience, whatever it is, and that may have been a very profoundly moving emotional experience. But moments later, you look at yourself and your heart's still beating and, and you're looking at people around you and they look all the same. So you're still kind of in the same shoes, right? You're still in the same skin 
nothing else has transformed, even though inwardly you have been transformed, what Peter's already told us. And in addition to that, if you were in a place where you became a believer and you, and you had never been to church before, or maybe just you know, irregularly every once in a while, and then you go into the church, you don't discover, if you hang around for a while, this amazing spiritual utopian experience. Most likely, unless there are chemicals involved, what you found out is when you walked into the building, there were other people there that were an awful lot like you. So maybe the anticipation was that you would come into a church where everybody's got their stuff together. And wouldn't that be great, right? I mean, for the benefit of me, <laughs> if you all had your stuff together. I mean, sometimes we kind of think like that, but that's not the reality. We walk into church or walk into Bible study or some kind of church or, or Christian experience, and you, we find ourselves surrounded by people that, well, are a whole lot like me and that have brought baggage into this situation. Uh, people that have issues, complicated stories, you know, the backstory that is coming into my current story, lives that aren't fully together yet, preferences, attitudes, shortcomings, weaknesses, the list goes on and on. That's the reality that we walk into of this thing that we call church, the community, the family of God. Scripture uses all sorts of different ways to describe it. We find out, well, yeah, we're surrounded by people like us. We find this kind of this hot mess of humanity going on, and then the point, or that you find yourself in the place of what do I do with that? How do I respond to that? Because the utopian thing isn't happening, so how do I respond to you? Do I choose to stick around or not? And we bring in all these other things, all this baggage of our cultural experience. We kind of just drag that along with us into church. We don't have a whole lot of people that have ever come from the coast, the west coast, the left coast, whatever, or the right coast, uh, you know, people that come from not Midwestern background. They bring in their subcultural experience and usually rub Midwesterners the wrong way, right? Have you been around folks that aren't from the Midwest? <laughs> For any, any any longer than a bit of you know a sentence, like why are they why are they like that? Why are they so arrogant? Why are they always to the point? They're they're rough with people. They don't understand. No, that's just who they are. So sometimes us Midwesterners need to get over ourselves, okay, and just to just be okay with people being different than us. Because I find, as, you know, I don't do a whole lot of traveling, but when I have been in other places, I find that other people are okay with that, but not so much of Midwesterners. Because we like it the way we like it and don't mess with it. Okay? Am I ringing any bells? That's, that's kind of where we're at. And we bring that attitude into our church, into our community, not just sitting on a hill, but I find that, I think that's true everywhere. Uh, the, the whole idea of tolerance, we hear that in our culture a lot, Right? Tolerance isn't a bad thing. It's not. Tolerance is a good thing. I would say as believers in the church, it falls short, however. You remember that passage we read from 1 Corinthians 13? It's not just for weddings, by the way. Uh, it really should be describing the kind of love that we are becoming into, we're moving into, that we're starting to show to other people, and the high demands that it has. 
You know, you compare tolerance to 1 Corinthians 13, and it looks like garbage, doesn't it? I mean, just putting up with other people. No, love other people. That's the standard of the community that is, you know, that is wrapped around the very nature and person of Jesus Christ. We all have passive-aggressive tendencies. I joke about it all the time. Maybe I shouldn't joke about that because we bring passive aggressiveness, especially Midwestern uh, people, into the church experience. Perfect example. First church I was at as a youth pastor in Iowa. There, the church was going through some major transitions. Staff, senior pastor had changed, and it was uh, in the mid to late 90s. So the worship war stuff. If you've been in church for a while, you know you've heard worship war. If you haven't, you know, I'll try to spare you and move right along, okay? But differences in approach to worship songs was a big deal. So you've got the old guard that, have, that expect and want nothing more than organ and piano and hymns. And all of a sudden, you've got these other people on the other side of the debate who are probably younger and want choruses. <laughs> you know, we, we want choruses in, in a lot, honestly, 80s, early 90s, a lot of those choruses were bad. A lot of them we just flushed a long time ago now, but it was all we had in the 80s and 90s. And people wanted something different and something new and something fresh and something alive. And these two sides start to clash. So at the church I was at, that was one more massive change that was starting to happen. And perfect example of passive aggressiveness, what do we do? Well, instead of working through our differences and preferences as a body, we just start different worship services, right? So you maybe you've been down this road. The contemporary service begins, right? So then the the ones the service the only service we had uh, that becomes the traditional service, right? Remember this, huh? So our church was so dysfunctional and so passive aggressive that we and it was I don't know like 450 some people at that time we started doing three services because no, we couldn't even agree on the two options. So there was a, uh, the traditional service and then the blended service. I still don't even know what that was. Maybe you had an organ song once. You know, it, it gets to be ridiculous. If it wasn't so tragic, it's kind of like dark humor in the church. So you had the traditional and then the blended and then the contemporary that almost everybody went to that one anyway. And it didn't last long because it just got sicker and more dysfunctional and really more hate-filled. So it, the, the passive wore off and everything just became aggressive and it, it really went south bad. But a perfect example, instead of working through and, work, and just for the record, for the record, if, if we ever get into multiple services and you know, uh, more people that has, you know, demands that for whatever reason, we're going to have one service. We are not going down the passive-aggressive worship craziness. We're not, we're not drinking that poison. We are one body, and the way that we worship uh, and what we sing and how we sing and all of that, it all comes together as one body no matter how many different services we've had because I've seen what it does to the body. I had a front-row seat, and it was ugly. Perfect example of something that we can't allow to take root and grow in, in our church that it shouldn't be anywhere, I, I, I believe. So agreeing to disagree 
that just adds to the hostility of what's already kind of churning. So those are just, that's just scratching the surface. Our own issues, our cultural issues, the stuff that's bubbling to the surface all the time around us, and all of that wages war on what Peter is talking about and the imperatives that are before us this morning that demand that we stretch ourselves in the other direction. So what, what are the characteristics of deep gospel love? What is he talking about? Number one, it goes the distance. What do I mean by that? He says in verse 22, having purified your souls. Here's another way of saying purified your souls. Because we read that, you may think it's just your personal thing. Uh, all of these, every time he says you, I think, uh, in, unless it's, there's an exception, but I don't remember there is. Every time he says you, he's speaking you plural. He's talking to the body gathered, okay? So you together think of this. You, you have started your life as believers, all of you. Now, where are you going? What's it, what is the direction that you're going in? Well, he says that you've been set apart, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Set apart doesn't come out in the ESV, uh, but it is in the language. In fact, the, more of a literal translation would be consecrated. And just for you geeky Bible study people, it's in the perfect tense, which means this. It has already perfectly, completely happened. You have been set apart. You're not being set apart. You're not already in that, you know, kind of growing, changing mode. No. With Christ at work in you, this is something that you need to remember that he's already done. He has consecrated you, set you apart as a body for something else yet to happen. Remember that. The going the distance begins in what he has already firmly established in his relationship with you and what has already begun. And this is certain, he goes on to say, because the obedience to the truth, the voluntary reaction or response that you have to what Jesus is doing. And what else does he say? He says, earnestly, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. That's a strong word. that he, he, doesn't, he doesn't just throw in any word there. He is using it because there is straining involved. There is real effort to this. This doesn't happen by accident. This going the distance with each other as believers, and it certainly doesn't come easily. Luke, in his gospel, Luke 22, verse 44, he uses the exact same word as he tells us the account of Jesus in the garden, and Jesus, when he goes away from the disciples, it's that last time that he has with the Father before the arrest leading to the trial and crucifixion. He's down on his knees in the garden, is praying earnestly, and Luke tells us so earnestly that his sweat becomes drops of blood pouring down from his head and his face, so consumed with this prayer and this moment. That's earnest. That's Jesus-style earnest. Now, we're not Jesus, but we are becoming more and more like him. So as we've been consecrated, Peter is saying, there is something in you that Jesus has that is set apart for earnestly loving and being established as a church, as a community, 
Again, it's not by accident. It takes effort. It's not easy. We got to keep those in mind. So it goes the distance. Let's go on to the next one here. It redefines family. You can choose your friends, but you're stuck with your relatives, right? Everybody's heard that at some point or in some place, and it is true. But we don't see each other in the church most of the time as relatives, as family, as brothers and sisters. But what does he say? Purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere what? A sincere brotherly love. So don't skip over that real quickly as just another Bible word that's supposed to sound nice and it doesn't matter. How do you respond to family? Now think about that. Now we're all over the spectrum on that. Maybe you can't stand your family. I get that. Uh, But maybe you have a really cool, awesome uh, relationship with your family uh, that serves us well for this morning. Now regardless of where you've been from, there are certain, you know, and even whether your background as a family is healthy or happy or not, regardless, there's still family. And you can still find yourself or yourself in a situation where it's, it's tough. And even if you don't like your family, what do you do? You still go back to them and you still call them up or you still text them or you still reach out to them. Um, maybe not in the very worst of dysfunctional situations, but most of the time, they're still family. One of the hardest things when you get married is that balance or that, oh, I used the dirty word, so skip that. Uh, when, the, one of the hardest things when you get married is, okay, who's primary family now, right? Uh, the, you know, when, when Jennifer and I got married uh, that first year, there are many times that she's calling up mom or sisters. I'm like, what about me? My chopped liver, whatever? You know, why, why are we working through that? Well, because the pull of family is that intense. I've talked to many people over the years where you think that going into marriage, well, we got this, and, you know, the lovey-dovey stuff is still in charge. And then you're married for a while, and that kind of fades a little bit. And uh, where's the pull now? Well, it's back to whatever it is that I've grown up with. And it's not necessarily the spouse, or at least not yet. So that leaving and cleaving thing, when it comes to marriage, as Scripture talks about, it takes effort. And you begin to learn that, and it's almost always the hard way when you get married, because it doesn't come naturally. Peter is saying brotherly love because of all the stuff we bring in to the church ancient and the church today it doesn't come naturally for me, for you guys to look at each other and say, you're now my brother and sister in Christ. And that now is a priority in my life. And when I struggle or when I need something or when I see uh, that maybe you're struggling, I actually see it. And I'm actually aware of where you're at and that you may need some extra guidance or counsel or encouragement or help or, or somebody to drive by with an eight-foot bed truck to help you move or something like that. That, that you're aware, that you know what's going on. Brotherly love doesn't just happen. We've got to work on it together. Now, I think I've got one more there. Yes, flows from redemption. So, uh, he says, all flesh, well, since you've been born again, verse 23, not a perishable seed. He brings up this idea of seed, and now we, we see where he goes with it, okay? Okay. Uh, not a perishable seed, but it's some weird imperishable seed. How does that work? Through 
the living and abiding word of God, and then he quotes from Isaiah, uh, from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. We don't have time to get into all of Isaiah, but let me just try to, to, to give you the synopsis real quick. Isaiah is prophesying. He's giving comfort through, through God, through the Holy Spirit speaking to him. He's giving comfort to the people about something that hasn't yet happened which is even kind of stranger, okay? But that's what prophets do sometimes. Uh, they speak of what is going to be happening, and there will be a time, uh, it's not at that time with the Assyrians, but it will be a time with the Babylonians that they are taken into exile, and they're not going to like it. So Isaiah is God's mouthpiece to the people saying, even when these things happen, you should always remember, what does he say? All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. What, what God is telling you, what God has established, what God has for you, it will be accomplished no matter Assyrians or Babylonians or whatever else is going on around you. Have faith in the word of the Lord. Now, we take Isaiah, Peter does, brings it into his letter, and then we understand the word of the Lord is nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news, Jesus is the word. He, he is this message. His life, his ministry, his death and resurrection should clue us into, Peter's saying, this word of the prophet that is good for all time. So God has planted this this the seed that doesn't perish, this word of God, this gospel in you that is going somewhere. Even your life will end one of these days. And we sing about that all the time. What happens next, right? It's in so many of the songs that we, that we sing. Our hope is not some uh, uh, unde undependable, transient, here today, gone tomorrow kind of thing. Our hope is in the gospel, is in Jesus who lives? He's planted a seed that's going to grow. Don't you want it to grow? Don't you want to be more like Jesus? Don't you want to go there with him and with the body? He's doing something. So there's something in there, even though he speaks of ancient prophecies, there's something there that's for us today that has to do with deep gospel love. If he is at work in you, the gospel is growing you know redemption, and it is transforming the life of the community. If we don't have that, then we don't got much. We've got, you know, meetings, <laughs> committees. We've got, you know, just bylaws without heart, constitution. You know, no one cares about that. What we do care is the body growing. That's what we've got to have, brothers and sisters. So don't look and don't be tempted ever to look at the church as a cold institution, as something that's disengaged, you know, it's just on paper, or whatever. The church is the living, breathing body of Jesus Christ, and we all make it up, and we are being brought into this new glorious reality, which he goes on to throughout the rest of chapter 2. Everything that I've just talked about is absolutely counter to our culture, is it not? What, especially American culture. We don't choose to do any of that, or at least not for long. 
Uh, we need to keep right in the front of our faces the glorious redemption we have and what that calls us into to ever experience what Jesus has for us in his body, to experience true community together. Okay, we'll wrap it up on this. What should Christian community be marked by? Also, a craving for more, longing for this pure spiritual milk that he talks about. And here's the way that we get there. Strip away the old ways of interaction with each other. Verse 1 of chapter 2. So put away, he says. And he goes on with his list of, of vices, of sins. Another way to say put away, because put away is really too weak. It's like pull out the drawer, take the naughty stuff, fold it up, and put it in the drawer and so I can pull it out later and get you back. You know, Put away does not have the, the teeth of the essence of what he's talking about here. He really says, strip it away. And just think of clothing. Now, when I read this book, I used Chernobyl and the uh, nuclear accident of Chernobyl 86 a couple weeks ago as uh, an illustration. I read this book. So after the, the, the reactor uh, blew up and, and a day is uh, maybe a couple days into it. So at that point, a couple days later, everybody knows how bad this is. And there's no more on the ground right there in Chernobyl. They know how dangerous this is. And everybody's starting to freak out. Yet some of them have to go into that building to turn uh, cranks or wheels or whatever. They have, they have to do things in order to keep it from getting worse. So they're actually taking these soldiers that are they were volunteers. And they know they're walking to their death or they're most likely going back into that building. I mean, it was that scary of a thing. So uh, in one um, account in that book, it describes a couple guys going in to, to do something they had to do, and at least one or maybe more, uh, but at least one of the guys, as soon as he gets, it's broad daylight, as soon as he gets out the door, he rips off every thread of clothing he's got on his body and runs for it, dear life, away from that building. <laughs> what a great illustration of what we're talking about here. He wanted to live. And he knew that radiation, and it, it was all over his body, and it just took moments to be just saturated, his clothing, to be filled with that stuff. He ripped off everything and ran for his life. Peter is describing that kind of experience. Everything we talked about last week, you know, the, the futile ways of your background, of your former life, Tear it off like your life depends on it. That's what he's describing. Strip naked and run away. That's what he's saying. These things have to be ripped out of your life in order for the church to move forward. So don't put away nicely so you can bring it out again. Uh-uh. You cannot leave room for that in the community, in the church. Now, like I said, first century was no utopian experience. When I was in college, I remember writing papers on the book of Acts. And, you know, they had fellowship. They shared everything that they had. It was all in common. And you get this utopian kind of feeling like they were perfect. They were Christians. And, and everything was love and hugs and, you know, reading the word of God and worship time nonstop. And maybe there were times like that. But they also had a whole lot of baggage and issues that they brought into this new church. 
So even then, it wasn't a utopian experience, and we don't have a utopian experience either. Even the first century, they had to, when the churches knew, they had to be reminded of things that did not belong in the church, in your life. Paul does it numerous times in his letters. We have to address it and have to be direct, even point blank with things that we tend to hold on to. So he doesn't give an exhaustive list, but he does mention these things, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Now let those things sink in for a moment, because that sounds like, and it is, a really bad list. And it's real tempting to say, well, I've done a lot of dumb stuff, and I've said stupid things, but I don't do those things, right? Isn't that tempting to say, I'm not that bad, you know? What is deceit? I'll just pick on one. Webster says deceit is the act of causing someone to accept as true or valid what is false or invalid. It's a lie, but it's really, it's the act of causing. It's working a lie. It's making the effort to try to get somebody else to believe something you really want them to believe. Can I be real, real? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do it. I don't care if you said yes or no. I'm going to do it. I've been, you know, a pastor at different churches for 30 years. And I've been, people have tried to deceive me a lot. And I'm going to be real, real. The BS meter goes off, you know, and the red flags go up and the lights go on uh, every once in a while when, when I hear somebody trying to deceive me. Now, it's not like I know everything. I don't. But I know enough now that the meter goes off, and I, I hear it, that there is, there, I get the, the drift that somebody's trying to avoid reality. They don't want to tell the truth. They want to suppress it. Somehow, something's, I just know it when I hear it, something's going on, but I bet we can just give the pastor story B, the alternative reality, and we'll get away with it. So maybe sometimes that happens, but I'm telling you, there's a whole lot of time that doesn't happen. There is a foolishness that goes along with every one of these vices, these sins that he mentions. So look at that again, not just deceit, malice, hypocrisy, envy, and slander in the light of the gospel and what Jesus is doing. The more you become alive, to the redemption story, the more those things should look stupid, foolish, dead end. And I really shouldn't need to have somebody with the meter go off. Uh, sometimes we do. Sometimes we need to just say stuff and have somebody confront us. Uh, and and that's, that's the reality too. But I, I'm telling you, make every effort to strip these things off. Because I'm telling you, they are foolish and they do go nowhere. And at least half the time, other people know you're lying anyway. It's, that's what I mean by foolish. It really does go nowhere. Rip it off, drop it, and run for your life. So strip that stuff off. Finally be filled together with the right Things. What does he say? Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. There are other places in the New Testament where Christians are kind of knocked. You, you know, you, 
you're still stuck drinking milk and you should have grown up. So it uses that milk in a negative way. Peter's not doing that. He's using milk in a very positive way, okay? So just in case you're confused by that, if you're thinking something else, as somebody who's new in the faith, who's growing in the faith, and you know what? That's all of us. Whether you're eight or 80, doesn't matter. We're all growing. So in that sense, we're all infants craving, longing for something more in our lives, something that we need. That's so he's speaking to all of us, long for something that's pure, something that, that you really truly need. And he's speaking to all of us together, keep longing, keep looking for those things that spiritually are good. And he even says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. At some point in your life, believer, you've tasted something in your relationship with Jesus, something that has been beautiful, that you experienced salvation, you've experienced the grace of God, something has moved you, you've tasted of something that's now true and, and right and lovely and praiseworthy. If your, your eyes have been open, right? If you've tasted that, then I'll bet you you crave for more. Go there. Long even more for that. Feed the right thing so that you can continue to grow in your knowledge of the Lord together with each other. So uh, let me get real uh, specific here because, uh, you know, some, some commentators say, we're well, just talking more about the Bible. The pure spiritual milk is the Bible. Read the Bible, study the Bible. That certainly is included in what he's saying, but not limited. So he's not just saying, go have another Bible study. Although there, there's a place for that. You, you all hear me right, okay? There's a place for that. We need that. But it's not just that when he says craving pure spiritual milk. What is it as a community that you're emphasizing? So the, the application kind of stuff. What is it for us today? Speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 says speak the truth in love uh, so, we are, so we can keep growing up. In every way. He even uses the same idea Paul does about growing in your faith. Speaking the truth in love. When you are tempted to pull out of that drawer one of those, maybe deceit, or maybe slander, or maybe something else that he mentions, grab your hand and shove the drawer back. Throw it off. Now this, I'm, I know I'm saying that's hard. So what I'm saying is hard, especially for passive-aggressive Midwesterners. Maybe you need to take another brother or sister with you in that, in that moment that it is a real challenge to actually, actually say the truth. And we all need to learn how to speak the truth so that it communicates in a loving way so we're not just jerks or, or you know, idiots in the way that we say it. So we need to grow up in those things too. But we absolutely have got to strive for speaking the truth directly and clearly and communicating in a loving way. Also, don't forsake meeting together. The writer of the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, emphasizes that. We need to be with each other. Obviously, that's been tricky recently. So we've got to do outside-of-the-box things, which we have been, which we will continue this fall. Who knows what's going to happen? But in some way, whenever we can, We've got to be with each other. The body's got to function. Uh, we need to see how our gifts, our mutual gifts and abilities and skills and all these things, how they connect or else the body isn't healthy. 
Other people need you to show up, no matter how you feel about yourself on any given day. They need you to function, okay? It goes both ways all the time. So we can't forsake each other. Now, let me add to that with this. Prioritizing your spiritual family. So it's okay for all of us, again, we're 8 or 80, it's okay to see yourself as a spiritual kid. Well, I'm older and I've been in church, blah, 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 years, and I've done X number of Bible studies. Well, you know, that, that only matters if you're applying it. I mean, to know Scripture in the Scripture sense is not just learning stuff, but doing something with it. Is To know in a Bible sense is to be applying what you've learned. So if you know something, great, give it, but we're still in the same boat. No matter how old or what we've done or where we've been, so it's okay to be a spiritual kid because you're in good company. So we can relax with each other and actually love and, and, and be there for each other and help each other. So this really is a no guilt trip zone. If you don't say the right words, uh, it didn't come out right in this holy spiritual sense. It came from the heart, great, <laughs> move forward. We're okay, we'll extend grace if you don't say it the right way because you haven't been in church for a long time. Uh, be careful with each other in that sense so that the other person can be built up instead of even inadvertently putting up a wall that says you're not quite good enough yet. You see what I'm saying? Especially in the Midwest, we're really good at that. We just, that just pours out of us. And we, we've got to watch it. We've got to be more in tune to what it is that we're communicating. So let me just, okay, I, I am ending with this. <laughs> so I, I know that that's a lot. And in a pandemic, and not just the pandemic, let's just say that it's not the issue right now. We're all tremendously busy. And as I talk to you guys and I hear the, the stress of workplace changes, uh, the responsibilities that you have, uh, and with coworkers, the demands, especially right now, uh, maybe the last thing you want to do at the end of the day is one more thing. And I get that. I totally get that. The, priorati the prioritizing as a family, I'm not just throwing another, you know, endless guilt trip on your shoulders. I am suggesting this, that especially right now, pandemic or busy schedules, as things continue to mount on our schedules and on our calendars that, that are so hard to try to manage all the time. That means, that emphasizes to us that we need each other all the more. So maybe we've got to be more creative in how we connect, but we still got to do it. We got to be more intentional in finding those places whether it's one-on-one -on -one or city group or just coming to be in fellowship in church, we, we've got to work through that. It doesn't just happen. But I'm, I'm, I'm pleading with you and whoever's watching, don't give up. Don't give up on the body. And maybe you're in a place where you felt like other people have given up on you. So I get that too. And I would say to that, give us another chance. Give us another chance to speak the truth in love, to be working through the differences, to extend grace to each other. We bring in our baggage every time we meet. 
Let's work on seeing each other the way Jesus sees us. That new relationship we have, let it shine. Put off the junk. Uh, intentionally put it away so we can have a new building, bonding relationship together. So next week, we'll get more into that. We'll get into more of what Peter describes as this beautiful new temple, this building that, that Jesus is creating in us and through us, the theology of it, the background understanding of what he's done, and then how that releases us to be this brand new, wonderful, beautiful structure that nothing else in this world can compare itself to. That's the community of believers. That's the chosen one. That's those that are set apart. That's the church. So this morning is the next step towards that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are many things here that are hard as we think about, many things that are challenges. And I pray, Lord, that you would keep our hearts open to how you would speak to us personally and individually, the challenge that you have for us, the thing that you want us to consider as you speak, even now, Lord, as thoughts come to mind, uh, give us the ability and the, and the uh, resolve and the intentionality because of what you've done for us to not just drop them, to address them for the glory of God and for the beauty and the functionality of your church. Uh, show us a place where we need to step up and step into and be found faithful in that. So Lord, I pray that you would do a new act of renewal beginning today in your church so that as we go through the rest of this book, we'll see something different. And even the world around us will see there's something different about those people. I don't quite get it because they don't fit into my mold, my preconceived idea, and that's a good thing. That's a gospel thing because you're doing something new in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives. Do that, Lord. Enable us, Lord, to surrender to your work in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're continuing our series in 1 Peter. We also have multiple podcasts to check out, including Genesis, Crossroads, Ruth, FaithWorks, and Glory. For upcoming news and events, check out our website at mycityonahill.org.